This is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. My guest today at Things I Didn't Learn in School is John Diggis, who is a veteran correspondent and an expert on all things Chile, and wrote this book. Uh, he's written a number of books, but a book I was carrying with me while I was down in Chile, and regular readers and listeners read those posts, called The Condor Years, How Pinochet and His Allies Brought Terrorism to Three Continents which I thought was a pretty amazing story. And so I want to talk about your life, your process, and this book. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn at School. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be with you. I believe you were actually, you were writing for the Washington Post in the 70s. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I went to Chile in 1972. I had a scholarship, a fellowship with the Inter-American Press Association that basically is a way a lot of uh, Future correspondence gets started. Uh, yep. It's a way to get down there. They pay your um, uh, your airfare and a little bit of money to live on, and you freelance for them for a while. And almost all of the correspondents uh, uh, who did that program end up being correspondents in Latin America. So it's it was um, it was a good way to get down there. Except that um, the Inter American Press Association, I'm 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 landing into a revolution a leftist socialist revolution. And my sponsor is an organization known to be on the side of the United States, the CIA, all the bad guys who are trying to undo the socialist revolution. So that was a bit of a hiccup with some of my, some in some of my reporting. So we got to get into all of that. And I also saw on Wikipedia that you initially considered a vocation as a priest before turning to journalism. So that's that's interesting, too, that we ought to turn to. But I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I delivered the Washington Post as a boy. And that was my first reading the world news section was like my introduction to international affairs. So I think I was probably reading your columns then. So why don't you step back for listeners who don't know your whole story and just say in your own words who you are, you know, what, what your field of expertise is, and, th- and then we'll jump into the Chile stories because I think they're unbelievable. As you said, I, I started out with one line of work, which was the seminary. I was going to be a priest. Uh, I was sent to Europe. That was really wonderful uh, to study, but um, it didn't take. And, uh, and I left and found my real calling, which was to be a journalist. I got offered a job in Des Moines, Iowa, on the Des Moines Register and Tribune as a copy editor. Uh, they trained me because I had an English major, I guess, and because I had participated in, uh, in a book project uh, in Europe. So they thought I was literate. Otherwise, I was not trained as a journalist at all. Mm. Uh, they had to train me from scratch. And that's how I got into the profession. Um, I decided I wanted to go to Latin America. I spoke Spanish. And um, I, so I went to Stanford University, got a degree in Latin American studies uh, on the theory that if you're going to cover a continent, 
you might as well know something about it. <laughs> uh, besides what you uh, learn, what you read in the newspaper. So I did that. I thought that was good preparation. Uh, and then I landed in Chile in 1972, right in the middle of this great revolution. Um, to complete the story, I then went on, came back to Washington five years later, six years later, um, worked on the desk at the Washington Post for uh, another five years, and then eventually went on to uh, uh, NPR. Mm -hmm. I was uh, on the foreign desk at NPR, and then I was managing editor and editorial director of NPR. And then I went on to teach uh, journalism at Columbia University for 19 years. Uh, actually, my longest job ever was was as a professor. Uh, in that, that allowed me, though, to get back to writing. Um, I'd written two books, one on the assassination in Washington uh, of Orlando Letelier. The, most people have forgotten that there was this incredible terrorist action right in the middle of Washington, D.C., where an ally of the United States, Chile, uh, whose, whose dictatorship we supported, uh, actually carried out an assassination right on Massachusetts Avenue. Um, and that's why my book is called Assassination on Embassy Road. Um, and then I did a book on Panama on the dictatorship of Manuel Noriega. Um, and um, that's while I was at NPR. Uh, and then when I became managing editor, I was, I was taken away from reporting uh, directly on Latin America because I was responsible for the uh, whole newsroom. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and actually, I wasn't as happy in that because I really, uh, I, I really uh, needed that connection with Latin America. I needed the writing. Uh, and so when I went off, went off to become a professor of journalism, it allowed me to get back into writing again. And I pretty quickly got started on this book that you mentioned, The Condor Years, um, which um, I, I needed uh, to get tenure at a major university. You have to, I'd already written two books, but you need to do something while you're a professor. And so I uh, you know, had to find a book project. And of course, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to write books. And so um, I chose Chile again because the... Uh, administration of Jimmy of uh, excuse me of um, Bill Clinton had um, decided to declassify tens of thousands of U.S. documents because the dictator of Chile, who had stepped down, uh, Augusto Pinochet, he had been arrested in London on human rights charges. Actually, the charges came from Spain, but London, um, the Scotland Yard actually arrested him, took him into custody. Um, and he was, that process lasted for a year. Uh, the United States, in order to collaborate, but not, in a sense, take sides in this legal process, decided to reveal uh, information. Um, and I, when I saw that those documents were coming out, I said, that's my next book. That is definitely, I know the story, I know the background. I was the first one to write about Operation Condor way back in 1980, uh, when very, very little was known about it. Uh, so I took on this book project, uh, which ended up with the Condor Years. And, and, you know, I've done a subsequent book on Condor Years as well, but it's not out in English yet. So this is, I mean, it is incredible story. 
And there's so many different angles to it. And I think it, to some degree it is generational. So I'm probably a generation younger than you. And I remember reading about this stuff basically as a kid. And it was really difficult to understand. And I had a school teacher whose wife was Chilean. I distinctly remember this in the 70s. And he said that they were, he said it was too scary for them to go back and visit her family. And of course I was, you know, I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't even know, I didn't even have a precise understanding of where Chile was. And so anyway, so you're in the middle of this thing, but of course much of the secret information is obscured and then you return to it as an adult with already that lived experience of what it was like, but now you've got all the documentation. So this is a gold mine. So step back and explain, I mean, it, it is one of the most remarkable episodes in U.S. history, but also CIA history. There's even something on the CIA website that you can go to that's publicly that explains their perspective on sort of what their reflections are, if you will, on what happened there. And, and your book has, you know, page after page of detailed things. But for people like my children are in their 20s, this stuff is very distant for them. Mm -hmm. Step back and paint the picture a little bit about what happened there, what you thought at the time, and what you learned in your research? Well, if you want to understand why this is important, why somebody like me has spent really decades continuing to research it, um, it's it's two words. It's human rights. Uh, the I went down there mm -hmm. uh, excited by this experiment uh, of a socialist government that had been elected democratically, and nobody questioned the authenticity of that election. I suppose nowadays they would have said there was a phony election, but back then an honest election was recognized as an honest election, and a Marxist was elected, Salvador Allende, um, and was trying to turn around the economy, trying to turn around the uh, situation of, of farmers, uh, farm workers, giving them land um, with land reform, uh, supporting unions. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, I actually didn't do a very good job reporting on that. Um, I, I think my my favorable dis disposition to what I was covering got in the way of being an objective, a good reporter. Um, I the work hmm. I did was was not first rate. Um, the dictatorship mm -hmm. comes in 1973. Uh, it's a military coup. Uh, it was supported, although not organized by the United States. Uh, the United States had been trying to undermine this democratic experience in socialism uh, for years, ever since the very beginning. The, uh, the United States actually tried to prevent um, Allende from coming to power. They tried to organize a coup um, in 1970. And uh, I was just doing some reading about that today. Um, they organized a group of right-wing young people who were recruited by a couple military officers to kidnap the head of the armed forces, a man named Rene Schneider. Uh, and they broke the window in his car, um, he pulled out his gun, and they shot him dead. Uh, so a kidnapping turned into an assassination. Uh, the United States' role in that has never been fully uh, acknowledged. 
uh, and that's something that I've been researching ever since. Um, the real core issues turned out not to be a revolution that's going to change the way society is organized and justice and the end of poverty ensues. Instead, uh, Latin America uh, became the showcase for dictatorships and massive violations of human rights. It really was the first time uh, since the Second World War and uh, when human rights uh, as a term and as a reality became the center of international law, foreign policy, and a international dispute. Uh, many countries were advocates, firm supporters of human rights, thus were opposing the dictatorships. The United States was on the side of the dictatorships and therefore was downplaying human rights, even though human rights in the United States um, had become an issue uh, at the same time. And so in Congress, you had advocates for human rights in the administration, we're talking about the Nixon Ford administration, uh, Henry Kissinger, you have the greatest defenders of the dictators and therefore really the enemies of the uh, respect of human rights in, in Latin America. And that's why it matters. Um, it is a time when many thousands of Americans discovered uh, switched from their activism in the anti-war movement um, to advocating, marching in the streets, uh, organizing around basic human rights, understanding that something is happening far away that is terrible, that is a, a, an atrocity. Our government is supporting it. Uh, we need to do something about it. So, you know, in the early 70s, you're not that far away. The, the war is still going on in Vietnam. You're, you're not that far away from the right. great mass mobilizations um, against the war in Vietnam. And uh, many of those same people uh, discovered uh, the issue of human rights. And um, <clears throat> my work has been to... Um, not, I, I don't focus on beating up on the United States. Uh, it's clear that the United States was in the wrong uh, by any moral standard uh, for a good part of this period. But there also were times when the United States was an in, in a very important engine of movement, uh, pushing these dictators uh, to move toward democracy. So there's two United States that we're talking about. The United States that defended the dictators and the United States that basically pushed them off the scene. Uh, obviously not the only actor. The main actor were the people themselves uh, who organized and um, brought, themselves, brought themselves back to democracies. Um, but it's, it's an incredible human drama. Um, which has a lot of tragedy, it has a lot of cruelty. Um, you 
I, I'm forced to write about secret prisons, torture. Um, I call it, I have to deal with the issue of how much I talk about these, for example, torture. Um, and, and if you overdo it, I call it torture porn. Uh, it is, it can be prurient. Um, it can be, uh, uh, sensationalistic for the sake of the, of the, of the bloodiness of it. Um, you have to treat torture as something that is, um, systematic part of a government program. It is not individuals, you know, uh, doing something as a, uh, in which they're not following the rules of, you know, the idea of, uh, of policemen, you know, becoming brutal and that's the exception. No, torture in the way that I was dealing with it in the 1970s and 80s and then, of course, uh, subsequently, um, is a major issue because it is a systematic part of state policy. It is not an exception. say human rights, I mean, basically for people who are less familiar with it, it's basically the Pinochet regime and then there are other partners and Condor will get into that, murdering people who disagree with them or they thought could disagree with them. That's basically, it's, it's sort of the essence of it. And when you were, when you were there as a reporter, we can get to what you, what those documents were released later. Can you take us inside some concrete stories? Like when did you begin to think that something was really in the book you write about bodies flowing down the main river in Santiago, like what type of physical firsthand experiences were you having as a reporter when you were like, Oh my goodness, the wheels are coming off the bus. You know, people thought that a coup was coming, um, September, October, um, August, September, 1973, uh, which by the way is the winter down in the Southern cone, uh, rainy, cold, right. not very right. nice. But as you get into September, it becomes it's spring. Um, you know, yep. your your uh, your soul perks up. Um, we all thought that the government was heading uh, to failure. Uh, the economy was in shambles. Uh, we thought either the government would be defe defeated in the next election, but that was not for another two or three years, or we thought there would be a military coup. Um, on the order of military coups in Latin America, which typically are not very bloody, uh, the military gives an enormous show of force. Uh, the government steps down. They kick the president. He has to go into exile. Sometimes he's in prison. Um, and then they call elections, maybe in a year, maybe in six months. And then they turn it back over to the civilians that are more in line with their in this case, right-wing conservative values. Well, that's not what happened. Um, uh, we pretty quickly realized that the level of violence uh, was enormous. Uh, for example, uh, I was living in the middle of uh, the Nunoa neighborhood of Santiago, which is a middle-class neighborhood um, that's, you know, one of one of the largest um districts in uh, in Santiago um, and from the first day 
uh, we were under a uh, 24-hour curfew for two days, and then a curfew starting at 5 o'clock mm. or 6 o'clock for months and months, and then a curfew going into years, um, more than a year. There were, there were gunshots that you would hear every night. And I swear, I, I was, I'm my own best source on this. It was almost every night for six months. It was incredible. You would hear gunshots at night. Um, one night, my roommate, uh, who happened to be a economics student from a working class neighborhood, uh, who was a member of the Communist Party. Um, he was, he didn't come home, uh, for curfew. And we were worried, of course, but we didn't, there was nothing we could do and we were locked down in curfew. At five o'clock in the morning, we hear the iron gate outside the house, uh, shaking. And, uh, I looked out from my room in the second floor and there was, um, my friend, Alcibiades, climbing over the gate because the gate was locked to get into the house, to get into the yard and then come up to the door and he had a, he could get in the house. Um, he had been arrested, uh, and interrogated when he went to his school to start classes again. Uh, and then that was actually a trap. They, they rounded up most of the students and, and took them to a, uh, a prison. In his case, he was only held for most of the day, but they put him out. They released him at midnight in the middle of curfew so that he, and it, it was, was fatal. It was three, potentially three miles away from the house. So he was dodging in and out of doorways all night in order to get home. Uh, and he made it safely. Um, and you know, I'm not talking about the, the, the bodies in the, in the river. I mean, when, when my girlfriend came back and she said, she went out to see her father and she said, and he was on a, one of the suburban localities. Uh, and on the way out there, when she came back, she said, I saw bodies by the side of the road. Um, I mean, remember you're in information lockdown. All of the press, all of the radio stations, all of the TV stations are now controlled by the government. Um, they are doing two things. They are in, um, they're provoking, uh, fear by telling stories of people that were shot, uh, while trying to escape or people who showed up dead because they had gone out after curfew uh, and the leftists shot them because, of course, they're trying to tell the story that the leftists are, they're bands of leftists running around uh, shooting people at night. None of that was true. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a terror uh, scenario that they're painting for the general population uh, to intimidate those who would be in opposition and to show that the to show the right wing uh, people, the people who were in favor of the coup, which was considerable uh, number of people, um, probably half the population was in favor of the coup uh, to show them that they were um, defeating the leftists. 
that they that they were in control. This went on for for months. Uh, Sixty thousand people thrown into prison. Um, about fifteen hundred people were executed in those in the first three months, and then um, over the next few years, another fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred people uh, uh, also were were killed. Um, in some in a somewhat different way, they use the tactic now not of killing people and dumping their bodies in the river or on the streets, but they would kill they would take people into secret prisons, torture them. Uh, usually, these were people who were connected in some way to the resistance. Uh, get all the names out of them, and then they would um, execute them and dump their bodies where they would never be found. So they were disappeared. Uh, if the mother came, and this happened to a friend of mine um, who had been playing his guitar uh, at a party uh, with a group of friends only a week before he disappeared. And we suddenly are hearing, well, where, where is Alejandro? Well, he didn't come home. Well, maybe we thought, well, he will show up, right? Well, maybe they took him. Maybe they will um, question him. Maybe they'll beat him up. We didn't really grasp that disappearance meant you're never going to show up. Your mother is never going to see you again. So were you filing stories then to your bureau chief back in the States and saying, listen, I that you know I, there, there's reports of bodies here and i'm speaking and they're they're giving me gibberish answers or what were you writing about well the, i mean <laughs> i'm not a hero in this story uh i as i said i i went through my my uh period with the inter-american press association and which ended in august and then i wanted to stay in chile and i didn't have a job uh writing I got a job teaching English at a British school. Mm-hmm. And the reason... So you're just sort of observing it all and trying to sort through it. Yeah. The reason I stayed in Chile was because I had this job, not because... And I, you know, I, I started after the military coup, I started gathering information uh, and sending it by letter, uh, for example, to NACLA, the... the um, uh, NACLA reports on the Americas, which was a very important uh, journal on um, on Latin American affairs. In the uh, well, it still exists, but at that point, it, it, back then, it was a very important publication. Um, that and I, my name did not appear until uh, early 1975. So for a year, uh, almost a year and a half, uh, I was not. Um, I was not publishing articles. Um, and in early 1975, um, so this is a year and a half, a year and three months after the coup, um, I was, I had a very nice situation where I was living um, out on the outskirts of Santiago, uh, an adobe house with with uh, a, a wonderful garden in the back. Um, and uh, our world was um, people that you can trust politically. Not that they were 
people that were in the resistance actively, but you didn't make friends with anybody that you didn't know or somebody that you were close to knew and could vouch for them. So that was our social life. Um, one day, a Sunday morning, the um, several men with guns came to my house, uh, came in through the gate up to the house and said, um, there's been an accident. We need to ask you some questions. Well, what happened? Oh, a little boy was hit by a car and I was all concerned. And of course, this was a fake story to get inside my house. Um, and pretty quickly they said, uh, we're, they showed me their credentials, which they were national police, but it was actually, it was the DINA. It was the secret police. Um, they were. So the secret police had uniforms. No, they didn't have uniforms. Oh, so these people are playing clothes. Okay, got it. So it would be like, you know, why are they worried about a traffic accident? This all happened very quickly. Um, my, uh, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, um, we were, uh, interrogated separately in the house. Um, they showed us pictures. Turns out later I learned these are the pictures of the four most prominent resistance leaders in the underground. Um, they thought that another woman that lived in the house looked like one of the women in the picture. Uh, they took us to one of these secret prisons called Via Grimaldi, uh, blindfolded with tape uh, in the back of a... This pickup. is not in your book. Yeah, it is in the book. I don't recall you being arrested. Uh, there's a section. This is the first in the Condor Years book. It's the first time I wrote about this. Okay. Um, this, <laughs> it is there. And uh, uh, Anyways, I go ahead. Go ahead. I interrupted yeah. you. Sorry. So, um, I mean, I don't want to make a big deal out of it because there are so many people. That it's okay. Just tell them. I'm fascinated by the story. So you're, yeah. you're blindfolded and taken in. Because I was about to ask you, did you ever feel in danger? This is answering that. Well, it certainly is. Um, and uh, I was able to figure out where we had been taken. Uh, and then I, right at, around this same time, anyway, I was not tortured. Um, they discovered that the woman that they thought looked like the picture she actually worked for a government economic research entity. Uh, she had credentials. Um, and so they let us go and told us um, in my interrogation, uh, well, you understand you're in, you're an American. Uh, your government supports us. Uh, you know that there's terrorists in the streets and we're protecting you from those terrorists. That was, and, and, you know, now we're going to let you go, but we will continue, you know, fighting the communists and fighting the terrorists um, and took us back home. Um, Did you have the wherewithal at that time? And I, I imagine not just to, to say anything about like due process, like what rule are you saying that I violated? You know, what am I being charged with? Et cetera, you no, know? no, this was not, uh, this was not even a conversation. Right. Uh, in those days. Uh, this, this is after, uh, at this point, uh, uh, more than a year had passed. It was it was very clear um, from. Um, I mean, uh, I 
it was not that difficult. I, I would listen to uh, shortwave radio. I would have, uh, for example, the Guardian newspaper was sent to me. I did have access to information from the outside telling what was going on in the country. And right around the same time, I got back into reporting um, and started making contacts with the human rights organization. Um, the Committee for Peace, which was founded by the Catholic Church, the Jewish rabbi, the Lutheran minister, and, uh, and, um, and the Methodist Church. Um, and I went to them, explained what had happened, uh, and they said, well, describe where you went and what it looked like. And I described all the details, the way the ground looked. I was blindfolded, but I could see down. Um, what did the pillars look like? They said, okay, we know, we think we know where you were because prisoners had described a place exactly like um, where you were taken. And it was this place called Via Grimaldi. The reason it's included in the book, among other reasons, is that that was the center for the international uh, operations of DINA, of the secret police. Uh, so it became quite relevant. So when did it begin to dawn on you? Obviously, once the files are released into the Clinton administration, you can see it crystal clear. But you're there. It's a very opaque situation. This is pre-internet. Everything is moving much more slowly. When does it begin to dawn on you that this is like a concerted effort by the police of this country to murder its people, then later on people in other countries as well? Like when does the full scope of it begin to dawn on you? And does it is it something where it's like it's obvious or you're initially thinking like, like my career started in Russia and I remember when people started to get murdered there. Initially, I was like, that's weird. And it took me a while before it was like, no, 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 this is a clear government plot to one by one by one assassinate in a very public way Putin's adversaries. Yeah, it was um, not clear to us uh, how systematic it was. Uh, the brutality became very clear because of that terrorism, um, the, the media campaign that I was describing, um, the number of prisoners. Uh, that that became very clear within a matter of weeks. Uh, when I learned that two Americans, one of whom uh, was a friend of mine, had been killed. No, well. the, the the Harvard the Harvard graduate guy. I read yes. about him. You had the reference that I looked at his Wikipedia page. It's unbelievable stories in Valparaiso, and then he's taken there and basically murdered in Santiago, right at the stadium. Yeah, it's. I'm actually writing about that. For my new book, um, mm -hmm. and there is uh, the the story on that. I don't want to go into it in detail okay. now, but the story that was told in the movie is somewhat different in terms of what actually what actually happened. Um, but it told me that not even Americans are uh, immune right. to the repression, <clears throat> um, and paranoia takes over. Um, so you experience that you begin you, to get you definitely experience um, you you feel you feel threatened you wonder who you can trust uh, my house was raided four times mm. uh, during these early days and most I think at least two of those four instances were um, neighbors 
<clears throat> that pointed the police, in that case they were the police, to come to our house because we were foreigners and we were probably, <clears throat> foreigners were suspected of being extremists. Um, and so it was, it was, um, it was quite clear by the end of 1973, <clears throat> the, um, uh, the terror, uh, we didn't know the numbers, um, and crazy numbers were being thrown around, some of which were very, much too high, uh, like 10,000 people were killed. Well, that turned out not to be true, <clears throat> but thousands were, were killed. killed. And so many thousands, of, there were gigantic prison camps um, that were set up in the north uh, in the desert area. That's just uh, right. I just flew back from that area up in Atacama. I'm sorry, say it again. I just got back from that area, Atacama oh. and Iquique, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of open also, space. A lot of open space. Well, there are there are towns, and they took one old nitrate mining town, uh, which had virtually been abandoned, and they turned it into a a prison colony. Um, uh, there was another prison in uh, Dawson Island, in the Magellan Straits, in the extreme south. So the opposite extreme. That was where they put all the high-class, most important um, uh, prisoners who had served in the Allende government, <clears throat> including Orlando Letelier, <clears throat> the foreign minister who eventually goes to Washington. And gets assassinated. So flash forward a little bit. So you have this very intense uh, experience of observing it all firsthand, being there. Then 20 years go by. And actually, the documentation of what the U.S. government was doing, particularly, it seemed like at the very top, Kissinger, who's then serving as Secretary of State, saying basically, root out the radicals. And even though lower tier guys in the State Department are saying, wait a minute, and because some of the other countries, wait a minute, these seem like mm -hmm. gross violations of civil rights, he's basically giving them this opaque, you called it red light, green light type of right type of message there where on the one hand you're saying kill all these people but on the other hand you're like don't make a mess of it type of thing so describe when you begin to get this information like what's going on inside you when you actually read all these cables that you document so well in the book well my my, my source was not originally the cables uh, obviously the cables came out many years later uh, my I, I began reporting and and I began getting to know people in the embassy uh, including the ambassador, who at one point actually prevented the government from throwing me out of the country. Um, it was clear, I, I, I knew the, uh, I had a sense of the extent of, of obviously, of U.S. support, uh, their reluctance to criticize the dictatorship. Um, it was a very, this red light, green light, this, this I kill it sometimes, the uh, Machiavellian uh, or the Manichaean division, moral division between um, good and evil. Uh, you see that at every level of the U.S. government. Uh, there were uh, people that I got to know in the embassy who were very good, smart people dedicated to um, trying to ameliorate the human rights situation, mm -hmm. trying to exhibit uh, support. Uh, for example, one um, one officer, political officer, uh, would go over to the church uh, human rights organization 
he would, which was right on the central square, and mm -hmm. would walk in in the middle of the afternoon, making sure that the police outside or whoever uh, plainclothes people were, you know, uh, spying on this human rights organization, that they would see a U.S. embassy official walking in as a way of saying, you know, we are a certain support. So that was happening. And at the same time, you had Kissinger um, uh, coming to Washington in 1976, and I covered this for Time magazine, to the assembly of the um, OAS, the um, Organization of American States, um, giving a speech on human rights, um, not, a, not criticizing Chile in any uh, to any great extent, but mentioning the words. Later, I get a transcript of his meeting with Pinochet. And of course, this many years later, uh, I get this transcript. And that's where uh, Kissinger is telling Pinochet, we understand what you're doing. We, do, we support what you are doing. We want to help you. Uh, I'm going to talk about human rights, but I don't want you to take that personally. Uh, I want you to understand that I have a lot of pressure from Senator Harkin, uh, from Representative Fraser, uh, from Senator Kennedy. Uh, they're trying to pass a, a, a amendments to cut off military aid. Uh, maybe you could release a few prisoners. Uh, that would help a great deal uh, avoiding uh, that kind of pressure from Congress. So Kissinger was asking him to release prisoners in 1976 at the very same time that the number of disappeared, in other words, people taken into the secret prison system and, and murdered, was at its highest level in the entire government. So you have this, this uh, public picture and you have the secret picture, uh, which is, of course, my job at that point, I'm a very active reporter. I'm trying to penetrate to find out what is going on. Uh, very difficult to get behind the scenes. Um, but occasionally I would get some military people to talk to me because there was opposition even within the military mm. to this draconian um, uh, secret police operations that was killing so many people. Uh, and it was... It was a reporting <clears throat> challenge. Um, and for example, I'll give you one. Uh, I, I had two front page stories two days in a row. Mm -hmm. The first one was saying the head of the human, the head of the Latin American Bureau of the State Department is coming to visit. Um, and as a backgrounder, I had gone around and talked to various sources. Well, my lead was that sources are saying that the uh, secret police are going to be um, dissolved and changed, and that Pinochet has decided to uh, restructure basically the, the repression. And I had my sources were one, one was a uh, uh, I don't think I, I couldn't identify him, but but he was actually um, a colonel who was in charge of the military district of Santiago. In other mm. words, the most important. Mm. Um, military post in Santiago. The next day, they, Pinochet announced the dissolution of the secret police. Uh, and that was the beginning of the end of the massive repression. Um, 
and this was this was in 1970. This was August 1977. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was beginning to penetrate. I had enough sources that I could find out. Uh, I had people who were telling me what was going on in the uh, on the inside of this military establishment, which at that point was somewhat divided. And the U.S. was now we're in the Carter administration, which is pro-human rights uh, and is exerting pressure to a certain extent, not as strong as they should have or could have, uh, but definitely they've switched sides now. Um, so that then in the middle of, of this reporting I'm doing, um, the assassination occurs in Washington, D.C. Right. Of the Chilean uh, who was <clears throat> Orlando Letelier. He was a foreign minister, but more relevantly, he had been defense minister. Uh, he had been Pinochet's boss. When he was the head of the armed forces, uh, Orlando Letelier was the defense minister. Um, and, and so he targets him uh, because he had become, in Washington, D.C., the most prominent um, exile leader against the dictatorship. And to give you an example of how important Orlando Letelier was, uh, he had had lunch with Henry Kissinger uh, four months before he was uh, assassinated. Uh, Um. So this this was serious business going on. All of these things I didn't have documents for at the time. So you're fast forward to the late 90s, I then, I'm in a position to understand these documents when they are declassified, when these secrets are revealed, I, it all falls into place. Zooming out a little bit on Latin America, what are the things that really stands out about Latin America? is A, the overall level of violence. According to you know World Bank data, it's, it's literally the most violent place in the world. It's more violent than Africa. And B, the swings from left to right. It's not like, the way I think about it is, is you know, in the United States, maybe it's shifted a little bit now, but I think about Republicans and Democrats. There were big differences between George Bush and Jimmy Carter, but they were contained. The extremes were contained. Whereas in Latin America, and take Chile as an example, the swings are so much more intense. Do you believe that that's true, that statement? And if so, what do you think the root cause of it is? I do think it's true. Uh, the, the extreme street violence occurs mainly in Central America and in the northern tier, Colombia. Uh, Chile was not a violent country at the time this was happening. Uh, the violence uh, was military violence. Um, but so why does this happen? I I call it the authoritarian temptation, uh, which the Latin Americans inherited from the, uh, Spaniards from the Spanish conquest, um, not to make the United States the grand model, but if you compare the background of the United U S democracy with Latin America, one of the big differences is that. We were colonized by people who 
uh, had a sense of uh, religious tolerance uh, that you had to, in order to just get along in society, you had to have differences and translated that into a milit into a governing system that we call democracy, right? That I'm doing that. I'm oversimplifying terribly, yep. but compare that to to South America, where you never had to respect other people's religion or other people's uh, political views. Uh, that was the mentality that was inherited from the Spaniards. Uh, in addition, they their main priority in many of the countries was putting down indigenous populations, which were incredibly uh, well-developed uh, and, and sophisticated um, societies, as you can see if you've ever traveled. Yeah, and the, resistant in, to the Spanish rule. And resistant to, to Spanish rule. So the, the idea of tolerance, of, of political uh, pluralism, um, is let's say it's a relative value as they evolved into democracy. Uh, it was a democracy of power groups trading the political system back and forth. You generally had a conservative agrarian based um, party and you had a liberal urban industrial based party. And, and again, I'm oversimplifying, and they would trade the presidency back and forth, and they would run for Congress. Uh, so you, this this was to a great extent true in Chile, except that Chile had a workers' movement starting in the 19th century that was more robust than most of the other countries. And by the time you get into the 1960s, you have a very strong reformist Christian Democrat party in the center, leftist parties, socialists and communists. The communists were never uh, a good 10, 12, 15 percent of the voting. Uh, and then you had the right wing. So you had uh, the reformist tendency was very strong. Uh, democracy had functioned in Chile successfully for 130 years. There's, there's, I just counted up the months. Uh, <laughs> now I've forgotten it, but let's say it's 13 months total of non-democratic uh, rule in that entire period. And by non-democratic, mm -hmm. I mean non-constitutional, mm -hmm. right? There were a couple periods where there was a military intervention that very quickly uh, returned power to civilians. Um, the, the when that system breaks down and the left seems to be winning, which is what happened with Salvador Allende, right? that's when the political establishment turned it over to the military and said, solve this problem for us. Uh, and the only way it could be solved was through, uh, was through violence. Now, they, there have been many coups in Latin America what happened in the 1970s in Chile, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, uh, and then, of course, other, other countries as well were dictatorships. This was the most violent period in South America um, with, you know, we can talk about Colombia, which is a, another special situation. But in South America, the big countries, uh, 80 
90% of the population. Uh, these are these are big, um, rich countries. Yep. Uh, Argentina, for example, had a GDP similar to the United States in the early 19, in the early 20th century. Um, this all explodes in uh, systematic violence. Now, I don't want you to think about this as violence of people against people. This is institutions utilizing violence to exert control over the population. Why do you think the response was so violent? And when you were down there, did you speak with people who were very enthusiastic about what Pinochet was doing? Certainly. The enthusiasm... We are living in the Trump world uh, environment now. Thank goodness he's, he's not uh, president anymore. But the the kind of enthusiasm that you see for uh, the Trump, the MAGA movement, yes, uh, the, and I don't want to equate that to the kind of violence that we're talking about in South America because it is not right. that level of violence. But the enthusiasm for a an authoritarian leader uh, the discrediting of the opposition, the dis the the uh, inculcation of of violence toward that opposition, that is the sort of th thing you saw in the Pinochet supporters, um, and that lasted for 17 years. I mean, they were in the driver's seat for 17 years. Uh, so that the the Dictatorships are not imposed just from the outside. They rise up as movements from within important sec sections uh, of the of the populace, uh, and that certainly is the case in uh, in Latin America. And, uh, I mean, Argentina was even worse. Yeah, um, Argentina, you had a very very small leftist movement, um, and you know. Argentina is is Perón, is Eva Perón and, and Juan Domingo Perón. It's a populist uh, reformist experiment that um, devolves into uh, a military reaction. And that military reaction lasted for decades. But its most violent period was 1976 to 1983, uh, when the number of when, when many more people were killed than in Chile, uh, about 10,000 people were killed in Argentina um, and and a, ve a much smaller, uh, there was not a mass movement uh, of leftists in Argentina uh, and, uh, and yet more people were killed by the military. Uh, this, these are systems um, that are constructed uh, for the purpose of ex exterminating um, political movements. What do you make, particularly with the benefit of time, of two of the principal characters? Kissinger's still alive. He's writing now about AI and things like that. And Pinochet. First of all, what do you make of them? And did you ever meet them in person and have and raise any of these issues that you were clearly very much on your mind? with either of them in, in question and answer sessions? Uh, I certainly was in the room with both of them, but uh, uh, un, it was not, uh, with, with Kissinger, it was just a, a reception. Uh, he was 
he was there with the military in Santiago. That's the only time I've ever that I recall that I was ever personally with with him. Um, and he was being feted by the uh, by the military government. Uh, Pinochet. I was in several press conferences. One of them, quite small group of journalists, and I just remembered feeling a deep fear. Uh, uh, I, I don't want. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a person that exaggerates a lot, but I, I felt I was in the presence of evil. I, I was, I was afraid. Even though I was protected, I had my credentials. Uh, he, but you know, he probably had been briefed uh, that this guy works for the Washington Post and Time Magazine, uh, and uh, he, he fixes you with a stare that makes you want to just kind of uh, turn around and get out of the room. So. It's no, it's it was impossible. Nobody ever confronted Pinochet with uh, uh, with any hard questions. And you had this amazing passage in the book where he was claiming poor health and couldn't stand trial, but then he gives an interview to a foreign publication. It's very sympathetic with the with right wing views, and he basically says, "I have zero." It was a little bit like Pol Pot or something like that. He was like, "I have zero regrets about what we did. We did exactly the right thing." And Kissinger, too, you have these outtakes from the State Department where it's like a very bureaucratic type of response, as opposed to saying, like, we messed up. There's none of that. It's like a very calculated, like, we made this policy clear, but they didn't understand us, and they executed, like, zero culpability is what I picked up in those statements. Kissinger has a Teflon effect. Uh, one of these people that that uh, who uh, is not held responsible for the <clears throat> for the crimes that he countenanced, um, uh, people will be discussing Kissinger for another hundred years. Uh, my role and the role of uh, some other journalists uh, has been to reveal what he did in Latin America. Uh, which is almost uniformly negative and um, um, qualifies almost in the range of, of war crimes in the sense that, that he was, um, well, not war crimes, but, but certainly moral guilt in the sense that uh, it, my view after studying this for many, many years and, and reading tens of thousands of documents is that the mass killing in Latin America would not have happened if it hadn't been for Kissinger's green light. Uh, he could have stopped it. He could have ameliorated. It would have been much, 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 much less um, if he had made an effort, a serious effort, uh, to stop the atrocities. Uh, and he did the opposite. He said, um, we know what you're doing. We defend what you're doing. Get it over quickly. How long is it going to take you? You know, this is conversations with the Argentinians um, in, um, in late 1976. He says, you know, the Democrats are taking over the White House. Uh, can you get this done by January when the new Congress, before January when the new Congress wow. comes in? And he's talking when he says get done get it done. He's talking about the anti-terrorist campaign, which at that point in Argentina was killing 
300 people a month in secret prisons. That's that's Henry Kissinger. Wow. Uh, and he knew what was going on. Uh, and he, uh, I mean, it is it is hard to take the view that we have of Henry Kissinger as this incredibly uh, smart uh, statesman who did the opening to China, who did many, many things which are not negative, is the same person that in Latin America was uh, with his eyes wide open uh, allowing mass killing uh, when he could have done something about it. And there's stories I'm sure that you, you read were very specific stories where uh, yes. the documents show that there was an effort to stop Operation Condor, the international killings. Right. Um, and he pulled back from that. And I tell the story in the new uh, in the new version uh, that that is out in Spanish, but is not yet out in English. Uh, well, why that happened, um, and uh, it, it it was you know the the Kissinger started to do the right thing when he realized that the killings were going to expand into Europe. So as long as right. the killings were in Latin right. America, he never did anything to really try to stop it. Right, the, the murder of the guy in D.C., and that's also a little bit of a warning that they that he had issued an order, but the order wasn't transmitted properly, or he didn't check to see that it was transmitted properly, but you detail that in kind of a brilliant way in the book. Yeah, I, I say we could the, the murder could have been prevented, not because we knew about it, uh, and, you know, specifically, uh, they knew about murders that were being planned in Europe, and that's what they tried to uh, uh, warn the governments in Latin America, the Chileans, Argentinians, and the Uruguayans. We know what you're doing. Right. <clears throat> we don't agree with it. We don't agree with assassinations in Europe. Well, he didn't deliver the message because he pulled back from it, uh, and the assassination that was underway was actually right. in Washington, D.C., in addition to the, to the plans in Europe. <clears throat> it's a great tragedy. Um, but the point is that any uh, reasonable effort to stop human rights violations uh, in the Kissinger administration right. uh, would have been effective. It, it, these things would not have happened. There's just unavoidable, uh, that conclusion is unavoidable. podcast is called Things I Didn't Learn in School, and it grew out of a book I, I wrote, which is that so far, I, I wrote a book about being a parent, and some key lessons my wife and I learned in that, and then I realized a lot of people have these life lessons that they learn in the, in the process after school. So for you, in this exploration of the history down there, if you were to step back and sort of offer a, a, you know big lessons that you, that you didn't learn in school about how the world works, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts? Well, these things are not taught very well in school. So you're 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 right, and I like your I like your angle um, because it's not because they are um, hidden. Uh, it's that it's hard to talk about them because we want uh, our government, um, we want our leaders to be really maybe people that make mistakes occasionally, but basically are good people. <laughs> We we don't we don't want to believe that they are doing evil. Uh, 
what I have had to uh, learn is that uh, this my theological background, you know, keeps coming up. Uh, that it is not that there are good people and bad people. It's that power corrupts, and that when power is delivered into the hands of people, uh, they are there is a very strong tendency for them to use that power uh, for evil ends. Uh, you see that over and over again. Um, you you can't look at the dictator and the secret police people as somehow ontologically different right. from you and I. Uh, we all have the beast yes, we do. inside of us. And we have to be we have to be moral and we have to be humble. We have to realize that even if we think we are being moral, there is always this possibility that we are going to do what we have seen, what I have seen in such great detail uh, that these people working for these governments do, torturing, taking people to secret places, and then yes. going home to their wives and their kids, uh, killing. Uh, these, these things are so horrible to talk about, but killing pregnant women or killing, capturing pregnant women having them give birth, then killing the women and taking the children and adopting them in military families because, of course, they will be raised in a good anti-communist family, Christian family, uh, and we have saved them from the evil that uh, their parents would have led them into. I mean, this theories that people are good and bad don't touch these kind of phenomena. Uh, we have to we have to see people um, we have to be tolerant we have to try to understand um, the people that are doing evil in order to prevent the the this encroaching evil in that systems will inculcate in ordinary people we've asked I know we've had close to 50 guests on the show and uh, everybody answers that question differently and that is, <laughs> is one of the best answers I've heard final question for me is as I offer all my guests this do you have any question or questions you would like to ask me you don't need to ask a question but after I interrogate all the guests for a while I always like to give somebody the option if they want to well only um, I guess you said it a little bit but I, um, I I'm why did you come across this story of uh, what happened in Latin America in the 1970s and want to talk about it on the air. I started off as a reporter, worked as a reporter for about six years early in my career. Then I worked as an investor for the rest of the time. And now, now I'm a, uh, a full-time writer, but I also invest money. So I look at the world a lot through what I would describe as a financial framework to sort of follow the money, if you will. So Chile's very interesting right now because there's a a real effort to switch away from fossil fuels, to, particularly towards electric cars. And Chile, as you know well, is the largest exporter of copper. So I was down there on a trip to try to understand what's going on there. But I always feel like when I, when I travel to these places, some places I know better than others, I always try to bring a whole bunch of books with me and read them as I'm down there. And one of the things that I had never really, I'd been down to Chile three times before, and I you know, visited the museum there that details this, but I never really felt like I understood the Pinochet 
period. And now with Boric down there, there's a real reaction in terms of both those groups kind of agitated uh, with each other. And I felt like I can't really understand what's going on with these companies and the risk of nationalization unless I understand this better. And so I hunted around for books and yours looked good. And so I bought it and I threw it in the suitcase and I started reading it when I was traveling around. And I always find reading these books more poignant when I'm in the place they're being written about. Yeah. And it was a revelation for me. And then there was another weird thing, which is I wrote one nonfiction book, the one that this this podcast grew out of, but I also wrote one fiction book. And the fiction book has an assassination scene that happened in Washington, D.C. And a lot of the stuff in the fiction book is based on things that happened at different points in time, but they're kind of jumbled together in a fictional way. And it was actually, I actually used the assassination, the Letelier uh, assassination as a model for the assassination that happened in my fictional book. And so it had already, it was kind of percolating there. And mm. it's the type of book that you think, I mean, it's the power of journalistic writing. Journalists have strengths and weaknesses, but one of the strengths is you, you file a lot of stories and people get good at writing good, tight sentences with compelling characters. And this was a book that I think would have been very easy to be boring as heck, and it's not. It's really, really fascinating. And I was reading it when I was waiting in line for flights and going back and forth. I was just pouring through this stuff. And it was interesting. I had it with me in a lot of cafes there, and I wondered whether anybody was going to come up and ask about it, but nobody wanted to say a word, mm. uh, even though they could see the, the picture there and stuff. But anyway, so it, it, it was an aspect for me of sort of filling in a hole in my chilly education. And then, uh, and then when I finished it, I said, Jesus, this to be a fun person to have on the podcast. How do I get in touch with them? So I began Googling, and lo and behold, your email came up. One of the things I Googled, I emailed, and here you are. Very good. John, thanks so much for coming on Things I Didn't Learn in School. Really fascinating conversation. For those of you who haven't read John's work and are interested in this thing, I really highly recommend it. The book that got me excited was The Condor Years, and there's a number of other ones too. So, so thanks for being on. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.